Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence, and today I am joined by Teresa McCalman, Democratic candidate for New York's 46th District for State Senate. Thanks for joining us, Teresa. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Yes, so the last time you were here, you had run for the 49th district and you were going against a Republican incumbent. Ultimately, you won the Democratic primary, but lost the general election. Now, essentially, that area has been redrawn. So we're looking at the 46th district where Biden won 20 points. So now, tell me about your run. It is extremely exciting. Um, Previously, like you said, in the 49th Senate district, it was a predominantly red district. So lots of Republicans, it was an uphill battle. I fought hard, I won my primary, but unfortunately because of the district at that time, I did not win my general. I did win parts of the district, however, over the incumbent, which are now in this new district. So I'm like, yes, um, my now campaign manager had called me and said, have you seen the new lines? And I'm like, what new lines? Like I'm getting ready to go teach, you know? And I'm like, what, what new lines? He goes, I'm sending it to you. And I looked and I said, are you kidding me? Stop, stop. And he said, yes, yes. And I said, well, we have to do this. Like this is perfect. It's like it was drawn for me, yes. And here we are today It's a predominantly Democratic district. And um, I do have a primary, of course, because who would not run for this? But like I did before, I won 73% in my last primary and I plan on doing the same thing now. All right then, and uh, in terms of your incumbent, uh, are you facing the same Republican contender or are we talking a whole different ballpark? A whole different um, Republican, but uh, this she's going to be new to this district as well. She's a Republican, is a predominantly Democratic, so I'm pretty much going for an open seat. We can look at it that way. Doesn't mean it's going to be super easy, but it will be somewhat of a, yeah. a smooth ride. <laughs> I would imagine, given that you know the area Biden won by 20 points, so hopefully you can continue to ride that wave. And so for those potential constituents out there who are looking to you, I guess what what do you have to offer them? Well, I think for the most part, a lot of people in this district know me, but um, I was trying to figure out because you know the question is, who are you and why are you running, right? Um, and I was thinking of how to say that in a way that I haven't said it before. And I said, you know what, what really kind of centers me is listening to uh, James Baldwin. And I was uh, watching one of his documentaries just before the show, just to get some inspiration. And he had said something, he said, you know, sometimes I wake up every day. Uh, I wake up and, and on some days and I wake up and I say, what is your role in this world? Who are you? And what is your fight? And then I thought of what brought me here, going from being homeless um, to running for office and everything in between, you know, updating my education, getting four different degrees in like four years because I had a plan. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm running for people like me. When I was homeless, it was unnecessarily difficult to get help and get support, especially as a woman of color. Very difficult and a woman of color surprisingly married with children. 
believe you, <laughs> believe you, me, it is a, a bad stereotype that women like me who have children um, and are going for social services and going for support come in with their husband and say, we need help. And we don't often get the help. And my question was, why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult? Who is in charge? Who makes the laws? And that kind of pushed me on the path to say, things have to change. Because if it's so hard for me, a person who can, I can articulate myself and I can fight for myself. But what about those who can't? Those who are used to being oppressed, being silenced, being told no and having to deal with that. What about those people? And why should it be so hard for someone like me trying to get back up on my feet? And I said, it shouldn't happen and no more. I've got to do something about it. So here I am making sure I make do on that promise. Those who came before me and had the same issues, guess what? I've been there, I know, I hear you. You will be my future constituents. I won't have to figure out where you're coming from. I already know and I'm gonna know how to help you. All right, well, it definitely sounds like you are battle tested and you are ready to go into this in terms of making meaningful, impactful change for the people in your community. And so in terms of your platform and what you're looking to share with them, other than that wonderful, at least a bare minimum $15 an hour wage, which is something that as much as we say bare minimum, it could change lives. What else are you running on in terms of your platform? So um, we're just, we're just, barely getting out of this pandemic, right? And we're still dealing with the after effects of it. So of course, healthcare is very essential. So we have on the tables, um, on the table in the legislator, um, the New York Health Act. We need one more senator to pass that, one more. But we need many more to make sure that it gets passed. I will be that next senator to come in there and make sure that everyone gets the medical coverage that they're supposed to get by passing the New York Health Act. When we do that, we won't have to worry about bills. We won't have to worry about overly expensive pharmaceutical drugs. And we won't have to worry about big business being in our medical health care and coverage and our decision making. Pass the New York Health Act and we're gonna be a better New York for it. Besides that, also fighting, I know this is probably not gonna to speak to a lot of our viewers, but I'm in a rural district and we have farmers. Now farmers are essential for putting food on our table, right? And they also fit in with our small businesses as well. We have to make sure that we're taking care of that. Those are the foundation of our our economy here, especially up here in upstate New York. So those are the things that we will definitely be fighting for. And of course, many more. That is excellent, it really sounds like you are listening to your constituents and what serves them and the things that they need. And yes, we definitely do need farmers, that's for sure. And in terms of um, in terms of working with the current administration and getting your voices out there and uplifting and making change, do you anticipate that it's gonna be a struggle? Um, no, I mean, being a, a, a freshman senator, it's, it's also, it's, it's obviously going to be hard to, to get my voice out there. But I think that because of my experience with working 
in the Senate um, when I was making all these changes in my life. I did intern in the Senate and I worked with one of the senior senators there, uh, Senator Niels, Neil Breslin of Albany. And I got to learn a lot about how things work, how central staff work and other senators and, and writing bills and learning how to um, enact laws and things like that. So I already have um, an understanding of how those things are done. And I already have waiting for me a coalition of people, um, senators, staff, um, former friends and colleagues just waiting to hit the ground running. I just need to make sure that I win in November. <laughs> and that sounds like it's definitely something that you are eyeing. And in terms of those next steps to really push you over the line, I guess what would you want people to know? I will not stop fighting. I know what it's like. I've been there to be, to be ignored, to be looked over. Um, we have a beautiful district. And it's been highlighted by these new lines. I have a connection to each part of those new districts, either living there, advocating in the community, or going to school in those communities. I hear you, I've heard you. I made a promise that I will fight to make sure that your voices are heard in Albany. And I am not going to fight until we get there. And I can only get there with your help. And if they want to help you and to get involved, where would you suggest people start? Well, they can go to my website, find out more about me and my backstory. It's a long story and I can't say it all right here in these few minutes that we have. Um, you can go to TeresaForSenate.com, that's T-H-E-A-R-S-E. For Senate, the word F-O-R, Senate.com. You can find out more about me. You can also go there to donate as well. I'm also on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. I am, I think we have a YouTube channel, I'm on Twitter. And my daughter is telling me I need a TikTok. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure about that, I'll leave that to her, but we'll probably get one of those too. Yes, I'm sure you will at some point in time. There are a lot of people out there on TikTok. And in terms of the people out there who are wondering, you know, making the decision between you and the other individuals who are running, what would you say distinguishes you? Well, besides the fact that I have a connection to every single part of this district, I've worked in it, I've lived in it. Um, I would actually represent history. Um, if they want to be a part of a history making movement and a, a historic uh, seat, they definitely should get behind this campaign. I'll be the first woman of color, the first woman of Native American descent. Just in case you didn't know, I am Native American. I actually speak my mother's native language. And also the first woman to ever represent this district. So if they want to be a part of that, make history, make changes and move our district forward, I'm Miguel. Wow, it definitely sounds like you do bring a lot to the table in terms of experience as well as background representation and essentially a wealth of knowledge and experience, Teresa. That is so incredibly cool. And I think that the people there in the 46th district, that they can appreciate that. So let's hope we will see. And when is the election for you? So the primary is June 28th, we're gonna start petitioning next month. So if anyone wants to join the team, you can go to the website or you can email me at TeresaForSenate at gmail.com. Or you can call me 518-387-9871, that's the campaign number. 
and we'll be happy to have you on the team. Wow, it really sounds like you guys got everything lined up. And I'm sure that the people of the 46th district are very grateful to have you as well as the other contenders out there. And may you continue to shine and do well. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, can you drop your website so people know where they can get more information? TheresaForSenate.com, T-H-E-A-R-S-E-F-O-R, Senate.com. Hope to hear from you all. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Teresa McCallman. Democratic candidate for New York's 46th District State Senate. Thanks for joining us, Teresa. Thank you. Welcome back to TYT's A Conversation. It's Adrian Lawrence once again. And this time I'm bringing you New York based reporter for The Intercept, Aline Brown. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Aline, you really focus on environmental justice issues. And this whole climate and punishment conversation is something that is going on, especially right now with the intercept data investigation. Can you tell the viewers a little bit about it? Yeah, so with this project, my colleague Akil Harris and I um, spent more than a year um, mapping the locations of more than 6,500 jails, prisons, and ICE detention, juvenile detention centers against indicators of the climate crisis. So heat risk, wildfire risk, and flood risk. Um, we put it all on a map so anyone can search for a facility or a community and learn more about the climate impacts that um, incarcerated people are facing right now. And then we dug a lot deeper into the stories of individual people, um, as well as uh, looking forward at how these terrible situations are set to get worse. And so since when you're looking at this, you're looking at kind of how the impact of climate will, um, how that is related to in terms of the punishment and, and carceral, like the system itself. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a couple important things to keep in mind. I mean, one is just that um, the the situation at these facilities where it comes to climate and the environment is very bad right now. Um, and it's not just a matter of like the weather outside. It's also just the nature of incarceration that um, means that people inside are are really sort of harmed when um, you know when when there's I guess climate pressure or or climate related disasters. Um, you know, beyond being in a situation where people have virtually, you know, no ability, certainly no ability to move, but also no ability to, you know, adjust their circumstances um, to become more safe and comfortable. They're totally reliant on the state. And the other thing that's important is that a lot of prisons in particular were built in the 1980s and 90s during the war on drugs and this during this prison construction boom. So a lot of them are really old and deteriorating just as the climate crisis is um, deepening. And so you have these essentially deteriorating conditions that aren't necessarily hospitable, especially for the number of inmates that are there. And it is, is it compounding injury? What is, I guess, what's the suffering going on right now? Yeah, so again, we looked at these three factors and um, you know, as we looked at heat, we found just 
you know, what appears to be hundreds of thousands of people um, in in the system um, suffering from really severe heat impacts every year. So we honed in on the story of one individual who had a kidney condition that deteriorated pretty severely during a year that he spent in a prison with no air conditioning. Um, a large proportion of prisons in Texas, Louisiana, Florida have no air conditioning. Um, so, and there's a lot of people with uh, conditions that make them heat sensitive. Um, where it comes to flooding, uh, we heard a lot of reports of, you know, people having um, sewage water coming into their cells. Um, a lot of power impacts where people, you know, lose power and um, are stuck in in really bad conditions um, as these storms hit. Um, and it's sort of similar with wildfires. You know, a lot of times the power will go out, and you know, we looked at one facility where these guys were sitting um, with no lights for over a month. At the same time that um, this wildfire is sending smoke into these confined spaces, um, and the surrounding community is evacuating or preparing to evacuate while um, incarcerated people have no idea what evacuation plans look like or whether they're, they're sound. Wow, so this basically puts these individuals who are incarcerated in uh, a very dangerous situation or position and there's nothing they can do about it. And the thing is, is um, you know, I understand the fact is that the state is supposed to still care for individuals even if they are incarcerated and that there are certain limits there. You know, we talk cruel and unusual punishment uh, with the Eighth Amendment. And so when we look at where this is on that threshold of failures to protect and to care for individuals. Essentially, where is this? Yeah, so I mean, in Texas with the heat, and I think in Louisiana as well, there have certainly been arguments arguments made that um, the circumstances amount to both cruel and unusual punishment and violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and you know, some of those cases have been successful. So in Texas, they've had to start installing some climate control because of those kinds of lawsuits. I haven't seen the same where it comes to wildfires or floods, but you know, these conditions are set to get very dire, even more so than they already are. You know, it definitely seems to be the case, especially as we're seeing climate issues, catastrophes, essentially just be exacerbated by the current situation. It would seem that individuals who are incarcerated will also suffer. And so when it comes to making change and alleviating some of this burden, what kind of response have you seen from lawmakers? Yeah, so I mean, in Texas, there's been this fight over air conditioning that's led by family members of incarcerated people, and the system has been very slow to change. Um, you know, the Republican-led uh, leaders there, Governor Greg Abbott, um, doesn't want to take leadership on this. You know, there's also a contingent of um, organizers and impact directly impacted people who say that they don't want new infrastructure investments and that the only meaningful um, sort of climate mitigation strategy for incarcerated people is to let people out and shut facilities down. Wow, so I'm guessing that that's not necessarily something that a lot of governors are down for. But also we don't wanna necessarily build more of these structures as much as we wanna move away from kind of this carceral state. So I guess what 
truly would be maybe somewhere of meeting in the middle that can happen in terms of keeping individuals safe who are outside of facilities as well as inside of these facilities. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And I think that this stuff just has to be grounded in what the what people who are directly experiencing these issues are facing. So families in Texas are demanding air conditioning. Um, a lot of people in California are demanding that facilities shut down. I think just listening to um, these communities and, and the people who have lived through this stuff is really the most important thing. And also, I would imagine that you know prisons generally have been put in places that are less than ideal real estate, so to speak. And thus, it might be closer to a hazardous waste location or something that is truly adverse to individuals' health. So I guess, is there anyone really leading the movement to, I guess, invest in more humane efforts when it comes to housing? When it comes to... When it housing comes to, the incarcerated. Oh, housing the incarcerated. Got it. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of leadership, I think. Well, again, it depends on how you're thinking about this. I I, I would definitely point to the Texas prison um, community advocates in uh, Texas, which is this group that's fighting for um, humane conditions and air conditioning there. Um, in Florida, there's this group called Florida Cares that's doing a lot of work. Um, and there's some, you know, there's there are legislators here and there. There's this legislator, Diane Hart in Florida, who's from a community that's really impacted by um, incarceration. She's a black woman and she visits prisons all the time and has like consistently set forth, put forth um, humane con- conditions legislation. So I think in every community you find groups that are sort of like really, grassroots based and community based that are doing this. I mean, I would also point to uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth who has introduced some legislation um, that would require the Bureau of Prisons to um, to disclose how they're impacted by disasters every year and um, also to um, disclose how they considered early release or um, yeah, or basically whether they've considered letting people out um, when disasters hit. Um, so that's something that's that's kind of been uh, neglected to two legislative sessions um, in a row. And do you think it's something that kind of gets put on the back burner and gets neglected because we're talking about the prison population? Absolutely, yeah, I mean, and this is something that I heard even in, in, in Florida, there's actually some there's one Republican legislator in particular, but you know there's some movement on um, the Republican end, even more in in the um, vein of like building new green prisons. Um, but you know I hear even from um, from them that uh, this is just not something that policymakers get a lot of credit can get much credit for. You know, like if you invest in education or um, you know roads. You can get a lot of political points, but um, not a lot of people are really thinking about. Not a lot of um, voters um, are are thinking about incarcerated people, or or that's what these policymakers perceive. So I think bringing more attention to this issue um, and making it something that they they have to pay attention to is you know is really important in in advancing any decent policy. Absolutely, and if I can ask. 
um, from your own experience very quickly, what do you think it's gonna take to get people to care, to make the changes necessary? I mean, that's a big question and I, I just don't know. I mean, I think that we're facing just a, such a huge range of catastrophes as the climate crisis deep, deepens that um, there's potential for communities and policymakers to become so overwhelmed that that prisoners are even more pushed to the wayside. So I don't know, I wish I had a more hopeful message. Um, I think that now is the moment for people to really start um, advancing some kind of better approach to all this. Yes, well, thank you so much. We do definitely appreciate your message. Thanks for joining us, Aline Brown, New York based reporter for The Intercept. Thank you.